0: Sunday March the 3rd. Welcome to this Burlington audio podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. We're starting a brand new series. You're a hard crowd. I know, you're not a crowd, you're a congregation. The rolling stone. Not quite the rolling stones, but the rolling stone. When they went to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday, before anybody knew it was going to be an Easter Sunday, they discovered that the stone was rolled away. The stone, that which was immovable, had moved. That which seemed impossible was made possible. The stone that reminds us that things that are without hope can be redeemed. That unmovable things can move and hopeless things can be reborn. In fact, the stone that reminds us that the dead can live. This is the theme of our series through the rest of our lead-up to uh, Easter. And the stone is a metaphor, a symbol, a sign that points to the greatest truth in history. And that's where we're going to start, if that's all right with you. Thank you very much. The resurrection matters. The resurrection matters. We live in a context where there is a massive temptation, and you can find it everywhere, where there are forms and expressions of Christianity which say that it doesn't matter anymore. And it's not the first time that kind of wave of uh, kind of thought and uh, uh, theory has emerged. It's gone through cycles at the beginning of the 1900s, all kinds of uh, uh, when the modernist movement took shape. Let's get rid of everything that we can't explain, and uh, let's see what we're left with, which wasn't very much and let's cling on to that. Uh, And there is uh, this rise and fall sometimes. So you can happily find a Christianity these days that doesn't think that the resurrection particularly matters, that talks about the resurrection as being an inspirational story. We can be inspired by the truth that sometimes after suffering, there's healing, that sometimes after a kind of death, there is a new kind of life. It Just paints this picture for us that creates some hope when our situation feels hopeless. But when the lid is closed on my coffin, I want to know that it's real. When I stand at the grave of people that I love, I want to know that it's real. When I see lives that in every sense are not redeemed this side of heaven. Do you understand what I'm talking about? People that live in abusive situations. People that live in poverty and die hungry. People that have had just an onslaught of the darkness of this world. I want to know that it's real. Because if it's not, what kind of God is there that doesn't ultimately redeem it and make sense of it? So it really matters. And we have to remind ourselves that we're in good company when we say that it really matters. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Now, you might think our preaching is useless for all kinds of reasons, but Paul is giving you a legitimate reason to think that preaching might be useless. Is there a possibility, Mark or Ken, for me to have my slides on the screen that's above you? No, it would be great. Tom that we're in good company. Paul goes, actually, if the resurrection didn't happen, then the whole thing is actually a bit of a joke. It's useless. And so is your faith. Whatever you say, well, I believe in this. If without the resurrection, Paul would say, the Bible would say, your faith doesn't make any sense. In fact, your faith is useless, if that be the case. What part of that verse do people not understand? I cannot have a faith and call it Christian if I separate out the truth and the reality of the resurrection. Paul pushes the point home a few verses later and says that people think you're a joke because you're a Christian. And they'll be absolutely right if the resurrection isn't real. It will have made a mug out of all of us, of all men. And let's include the women will be most pitied. Thank you. Christianity does not, that does not hold to the resurrection to be not just one among many tenets of belief so christianity believes this, believes this it believes this it believes this it believes this and i can perhaps get rid of that one and get rid of that one but i'll hold on to this one and this one if if the bible says you've got these tenets of belief and the resurrection if you get rid of the resurrection all of them fall like a pack of cards none of them make sense it's like you pull the fundamental thread you know when you've got a little bit of a skag on your jumper and you pull it and you wish you hadn't because your whole jumper unravels you know there are threads aren't there Only some people understand this, but there are threads that you can cut and nothing happens and it just tidies up your jumper. And then there are threads that I cut and the whole thing unravels and you've got a massive hole. How do you know which thread it is? The resurrection is one of those threads that if you cut it, pull it, mess with it, the whole thing unravels. You've got nothing left ultimately. Why? Because without the resurrection, there is no salvation. There's no rescue. Nothing's been achieved. For only for this life we have hope in Christ, we have to be pitied more than all men. If Christ has not been raised, then the death of Jesus was just like any other death, yours and mine, it achieved nothing. He didn't conquer death, he was conquered by death, which puts him alongside everybody else in the rest of the human race. If Jesus is now dead, we cannot know him, love him, Serve him, delight in him, worship him. Thanks for the effort, Simone, but it was pointless this morning because he doesn't even exist. But it was a nice time anyway. That's the, that. If you pull the resurrection thread, that's that's where we end up. And so a Christianity that says that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, but somehow we're going to worship him is, is not just a, a heart, a kind of, a, a, sorry, a head, intellectual, mis- it, it, it engages our hearts. How can, how can you respond to someone in that way? If Jesus is not raised, said George Ladd, I love this phrase, that redemptive history ends in the cul-de-sac of a Palestinian grave. Someone ought to write a song about that. Without it, Jesus wasn't God. And this is quite significant because Jesus said again and again, when they really pushed him, are you really divine? Are you really the one? Jesus said, ultimately you will know the one because I will die and three days later I will rise again. That's what Jesus, of his own admission, gave as the testimony, the ultimate proof that as we look back on his life, we will see his death and resurrection as a sign, as proof, as a guarantee that he actually was who he said he was. And so it suddenly became quite important. And Jesus said, well, you'll demand a sign and everyone's always looking for a sign. But if you want one, this will be the proof. Which is fair enough. Jesus is saying, well, you know, if the miracles aren't good enough, and if I've raised the odd person from the dead, if that's not good enough, this needs to be the ultimate proof. And if you need a sign, this is what it will be. And if that's not a a big enough or a good enough sign for you, then basically Jesus says, well, God bless you. But that's the deal. This is the sign. This is the proof uh, that three days later he will rise from the dead. The Bible doesn't make any sense without the resurrection. It's again, it's that thread. It's that thread that goes right back to Moses' staff. Remember that when Moses threw his staff down? And it got these little sprouts on it. Remember all that back in Leviticus? Way, way back, there are these nods and winks to the resurrection that would happen uh, a couple of thousand years uh, later. So if you lift out every passage that in the scriptures relies on the the resurrection, you, you probably get a couple of nice stories in the maps at the back. That's kind of all you're left with, really. Because you've pulled the fundamental thread. And uh, and this is a sobering one, isn't it? Without it, there are just religions. I mean, religions suck, don't they? They've got some good things attached to them, maybe. But the way they've been used and manipulated over the years leads us to believe that they kind of suck, really. They kind of demand a lot of people. And people fight for it, uh, both internally and externally. And most... Religions, of course, are, are kind of human philosophies. Put those to one side then. There are the four major religions that come from four founders. Jewish religion founded by Abraham, of course, Buddhism founded by Buddha. Well done, you're catching on really fast. Islam founded by Muhammad and Christianity founded by Jesus. So so, in a sense, those are the kind of four key marketplace religions. But Christianity already separates itself uh, from those other three by claiming, true or false, by claiming that its founder is still alive. The other religions don't try to claim that. They don't intend to. They don't want to. Uh, so Christianity separates itself out and says, ultimately, its truth is dependent on whether its founder is uh, alive or not. And that's why we often talk about Christianity not being just another religion. Another religion is about if I do certain things, I will find myself, discover myself, connect with the divine, I will reinvent myself, I'll be reborn, I'll do something myself. Uh, Christianity says, actually, this is an invitation to know somebody. And you can only know somebody if they're alive, obviously. It's quite difficult otherwise, isn't it? And so uh, there's this kind of massive divide between... Uh, the other religions of Christianity, which maybe is why sometimes we get such a response. I, I wouldn't do this now in our current culture because it would be tone deaf. Uh, it was probably tone deaf back then, but I was young and didn't care less. So I've grown a bit and matured a bit. We used to send a community news out to 2,000 houses around the area here. Uh, the reason that we stopped doing that is that we didn't get any response, having done that for about 10 years, except one. Only one response am I aware of from every, th- every three times a year, sending 2,000 uh, newsletters out around the houses of this area. And I came to church in the evening. That was when we were all proper Christians and we had an evening service as well to make sure that we got into heaven. And I came early to get it all to kind of get, and I was just wandering around the church and the church was open. And this guy came in who was absolutely furious It's, it's the one of two occasions I thought I might be killed doing this job. The other was out on a farm with a pitchfork, but that's another story. And he was absolutely furious. He was furious because basically what I'd said in this opening kind of little kind of pastor's thought for the day, which I thought was also cute and sweet, was basically saying Christianity claims to have a founder that's alive. With the other religions, don't claim that. That's what, basically what I said. He was absolutely incensed that I should, um, you know, incite religious hatred and all this kind of stuff. Whatever was going on, it really rattled him. So he understood that there was a difference, at least. I got some kind of response, for which most preachers are grateful. Uh, but he was absolutely mad. But he was understanding exactly the point. That's why the Bible says that actually this can be sweet message for some people, but it can really anger other people. And that's the truth, isn't it? Jesus has always been like that, like Marmite. Love it, get it, hate it. You can't really understand Jesus and be apathetic about it. Which is what C.S. Lewis said, didn't he? Jesus was either um, kind of a lunatic. He was totally mad. Like Jesus was convinced he was God and he was raised from there. Either Jesus is just mad or Jesus is bad. He was incredibly deceptive of people. Or he was actually who he said he was. You can't kind of have this intermediary sort of wishy-washy kind of space because Jesus didn't leave that open to us. So all in all, the resurrection kind of matters. So we need to ask ourselves, what, what do we think? Both head and heart, did it happen? I'm just going to give you some reflections uh, around our head about why we might be confident in the veracity and the truth of the resurrection. Ultimately, we need head and heart to engage with the risen Jesus to become convinced. So at the end of it all, you can have all this head knowledge, and then Jesus says, well, I invite you to get to know me. I stand at the door and knock. Yeah? you can let me in and i can touch your heart head and heart align that's when we uh, discover the fullness of truth but we're kind of good uh, uh western people that often lead with our heads so here we go there's there's testimony isn't there within 20 years of the resurrection paul was writing about the resurrection and uh, 20 years seems like a long time, doesn't it? You think I can't, gosh, a lot could happen in 20 years. They could have made up all sorts of things in 20 years. But Livy's Roman history, for example, it was written 900 years after the events that it talks about. And no one sits down and says that's a load of rubbish. It's quite a long passage of time. So uh, what historians will tell us that that 20 years actually is a very short period of time in getting down uh, truth, especially in that tradition where the tradition is oral. There are no printing press, there's no kind of uh, mass production of text and so on. Which is why Paul says in Corinthians, what I pass on to you is of first importance. I receive from the Lord what I passed on to you. It's a kind of very technical way of saying, this is important stuff that we are passing on in our tradition, stuff that we need to know and that we need to remember. We don't need to do that anymore because we just Google it. But in those days, you needed to remember something, and you needed to pass it on to make sure the next generation understood it. And so their commitment to that oral tradition was uh, much more serious, in fact, uh, life-dependent in a way that... Um in a way that uh, uh, we don't, we don't need to. I mean, we think about things being passed on as gossip, a bit like Chinese whispers, doesn't it? If I start with Julia and I say something to her, by the time it gets uh, over to Tina over there somewhere, it'll be a completely different message. But these guys knew how to do this. They needed to hold on to things that were things that were true. Uh, uh, and then Paul says, "Well, um, if you don't believe me, go and chat to some people." Interesting thing about when Paul was writing, he was writing when other people who had met Jesus risen were still alive. So, so Paul is kind of going, well, um, this is this is what I know to be true, and I know it to be true because I myself have met the risen Jesus. But if you don't believe me, then you can chat to people who physically met Jesus after the resurrection. You can you can get on a bus, a car, whatever you had in those days, a horse and carriage. You can go and chat to some people about it uh and uh find out for your for yourselves. And then Paul ultimately says, Well, you know, my life has changed because I met Jesus for real. He moves from the head uh to the to the heart. The Gospels, interestingly, um, all four of the Gospels are written with different perspectives, aren't they? They're written to different people, with slightly different <clears throat> reasons for writing their message. There are only two or three things, the resurrection being one of them, that appear in all four of the Gospels. And all four of the Gospels uh, end their story by saying two things. There was an empty tomb, and many people saw him. That's, that's what the the Gospels were were saying. And the interesting thing about um, the Gospels is that they are written down after Paul was writing. So we think of them as being first because they tell the story of Jesus. They're actually written down after Paul was writing his stuff. And so um, the fact that the Gospels don't include all the evidence that we know was current at the time, about the resurrection of Jesus, simply reinforced that that wasn't the main point that they were needing to make because there was a general understanding about the veracity of it. Uh, And so there's this picture being built that the platform, the foundation of the early church, began with this belief that was solid and firm that Jesus was, in fact, uh. Alive. And then, of course, we have the testimony of the changed lives. Isn't we? we have to try and work out why the disciples went from being totally faithless and fearful to being as bold as brass. And Peter, when he preaches the first sermon, explains why he's now as bold as brass. He basically goes, well this Jesus that you killed God's now raised him to life again. That's what he that's like the the clinch argument of his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He uses it as the basis to explain what's happened To him, Why am I now here standing in the marketplace rather than being locked away behind closed doors? I'm in this place right now because Jesus who you killed, which is quite a bold thing to say, isn't it, to a bunch of religious people, God turned up and you killed him. You killed him, but God then raised him to uh, life. The church, writes Michael Green, beginning from a handful of uneducated fishermen and tax gatherers, Not sure that all fishermen need to be uneducated, but I question that. It could be true. Uh, A handful of, that was a joke, a handful of uneducated fishermen and tax gatherers. It doesn't quite say whether the tax gatherers are also uneducated, but that that's questionable as well. Um, uh, I'm going to start again because I'm totally ruining this quote. Uh, the church, beginning from a handful of uneducated fishermen and tax collectors, swept across the whole known world in the next 300 years. It's a perfectly amazing story of peaceful revolution that has no parallels in the history of the world. It came about because Christians were able to say to inquirers, Jesus did not only die for you, he is alive. You can meet him and discover for yourself the reality we're talking about. They did and joined the church and the church born from the Easter grave spread everywhere. And of course, there have been changed lives ever since, haven't they? And uh, and that's why we're here. Ultimately, that's why we're here. Because actually we believe we've met him. This is the continuation of the story. It, it, it tracks right back to this Palestinian grave that we meet him. And uh, Nicky Gumbel of Alpha fame. Countless millions of people down the ages have experienced the risen Christ. They consist of people of every color, race, tribe, continent, and nationality. They come from different economic, social, and intellectual backgrounds, yet they all unite in a common experience of the risen Jesus Christ. So you have this kind of, this head and this heart coming together, this alignment that testifies to Jesus being uh, alive. Of course, there are all kinds of theories, aren't there? theories about what might have happened that try and explain away the straightforwardness of the story in the way that I've just explained. The swoon theory is the kind of uh, one of the most popular ones. Uh, we'll come to that in a minute. Let's do this one first. The disciple stole the body. I mean, that's, I guess that's fair, isn't it? Probably unlikely, wouldn't you say? That the disciple stole the body. Putting them in direct confrontation of the authorities that they were scared of. But it doesn't really make any sense to me that you would be tortured and martyred for something that you knew wasn't true. I would have broken, wouldn't you? So think about it. 500 people, there's the 12 disciples plus a load of others, they're all getting persecuted. As soon as the flames got near my toes, I think I'd say, oh, let me show you where he is. Wouldn't you? But no one broke? No one broke? They didn't find one person in the whole of that part of the known world who broke. It's not really a great motivation, is it, to steal the body? For the lie that they held onto, they were hated, scorned, persecuted, excommunicated, tortured, exiled, crucified, boiled alive, roasted, beheaded, disemboweled, and fed to lions. Hardly a catalogue of perks. I mean, I might lie for a Mars bar, but you're not going to lie for that, are you? Really, to be fair. Why was the lie never exposed? Why were the authorities that were so concerned that this story might get out, they were so concerned by what might happen if people put their trust in the risen Jesus? Why didn't they just go, ta-da, here he is. If there'd been a conspiracy, how come it was kept so well? And the, we know that the tomb was guarded, don't we? We know that they put the guards on the tomb and all that stuff. And then there's this lovely kind of, lovely nod and wink from heaven. There's the grave clothes all kind of just folded up as if somehow someone just drifted out of them. It's the best bit of the Easter story, I think. They're just kind of sitting there, the grave clothes going, huh? Huh? Work this one out then. Huh? Love the way the nod and the wink from heaven comes. What about the authorities? Maybe they stole the body. Well, why didn't they just get it out? And then this idea perhaps that uh, Jesus didn't Jesus didn't die. The Bible tells us that he died in terms of the testimony of the soldiers. Soldiers were familiar with death, sadly. They were used to seeing the difference between someone who's dead and alive and any of us who have been involved, either personally in our relationships, know that there's quite a very significant difference between someone who's dead and someone's alive. It's pretty hard to uh, confuse that. Uh, they didn't break the legs of the Jesus on the cross because they could see that he was already dead. The blood and water that poured out of Jesus confirmed that he was already dead. The grave clothes that I've just uh, talked about would have suffocated him anyway. And is it really the case that someone who had suffered in the way that Jesus suffered, and, and no one disputes that Jesus suffered in the way that he disputed. No one goes, oh, he wasn't crucified. Everyone might dispute the resurrection. No one. Is it realistic that someone who went through crucifixion, I remember um, doing some research on what a crucifixion was like, and towards one Easter, I talked about it here, And actually, I asked only for adults to be in the room because it was so horrific. Uh, Absolutely appalling, uh, what it does to your body. Uh, Just take the flogging, for example, before the crucifixion. The, The skin off the back would have been completely removed so you could see the internal organs. So imagine how weak someone is, even if they ended up not dying. And they're put in this tomb. And the idea that the coldness of the tomb would somehow have revived this totally physically wrecked human being who would... Climb out of the grave clothes, wrap the grave clothes back up as if they hadn't got out, pushed the stone away and wandered into the city, and everyone now worships him as Lord and King. You can believe that if you want, but I think that's harder. I think that's more difficult to intellectually get your head around. A half-dead, staggering sick man who'd just come... Had a narrow escape, is not usually worshipped fearlessly as divine Lord and conqueror of death. But then maybe it was hallucinations. But hallucinations are private, they're subjective, and so on and so forth. We're getting, kind of plucking at straws now. The simple faith of the Christian... Who believes in the resurrection is nothing compared to the credulity of the skeptic who will accept the wildest and most improbable romances rather than admit the plain witness of historical certainties. The difficulties may be great, but the absurdities of unbelief are greater. The difficulties of belief may be great, but the absurdities of unbelief may be greater. Scale of one to ten. Ten is I'm absolutely convinced in the resurrection of Jesus. Number one is that I'm not convinced at all. What number are you today? Just in your spirit. Just ask. I'm not going to ask you to stand up, shout out. We're not going to mark it. I'm not going to hand your papers in. It's just about you and your journey. Where are you? Because this seems to me really matters. This really matters. And so what? So what is this? If Christ died for me, then the resurrection makes that true. If Jesus died for me, but just died, then it's a pointless exercise. He died like you and I. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's a thought, isn't it? That which has always separated us from God still separates us from God if Jesus was not raised. So what? If Jesus is raised, I too will be raised, and you. I, I, I don't know about you, but I think we're interested in that. We pretend that life is all that there is, and we invest so much in these moments. But I think at the end of the day, when our head hits the pillow, actually we want to know that there's more than just this. We, we want to know that, that my life counts more than just for these moments. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came through also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. I can meet, know, and love him. There is no religion of rules or ritual but of relationship. I can know him, love him, serve him, enjoy him, delight in him, be with him. I can live with confidence. Because whatever the tomorrow, whatever the tomorrow, one day I'll be home. Whatever tomorrow, one day I'll be home. I don't know about you, but that resonates deep within me. I need that truth in my life. Uh, and you might say, therefore, well, yeah, of course you do. It's just a it's just a crutch. But the fact that that need exists suggests that it's able to be, I mean, it's one of the, the arguments for God, isn't it? The fact that that need exists in itself suggests that that need can be met. Where does that need come from if I'm just a, a flick on the history of time? And so Paul says, look, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I, I'm going to go to the wall. I'm going to go down for it. And like so many people all around the world, like the people that we were with in Thailand just a week ago, they will they will go to the wall for it. They will sacrifice their lives quite literally for it. Because it has made to them all the difference in the world. And they see in this singular truth, the thread, that if you pull it, everything falls apart. But this thread, if you hold on to it, weaves its way all the way through history. To one day Jesus comes back, not as a baby meek to save, but as Lord and conquering King. For I am convinced that neither death nor life or anything in all creation can what? What? can separate me from the love of God. If Jesus is still dead in a Palestinian grave, then he himself is now separated from God, and you and I are without hope. But if he is alive, if he is the one that gives sense and meaning to who we are and everything that we are doing, then honestly, everything changes. And my problem is this, and maybe yours too. I'm way too comfortable with the idea that Jesus is alive and risen from the dead. It's the sea that I swim in, so I no longer see it. It's like saying to a fish, do you understand what sea this is? I go, no idea. We've lost sight of the power, the reality, the dynamism of it, because it rolls up, it becomes so comfortable, so familiar. But if he's alive, whatever your immovable stone is, that stone can move. And that's what this series is all about. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you invite us. You draw us into a discovery. You draw us in to think intellectually. To use our minds. And you draw us in with our hearts. To love the Lord your God with all your mind. And with all your soul. And so as we allow these things to settle in our minds... And in our hearts. We choose to give assent to the truth. And we choose to offer worship. From our hearts. I'm asking. Holy Spirit would you reveal to us the truth of Jesus this morning in a fresh way? For those of us who need to know in the deepest parts of our lives the truth of who you are and what you've done, come and minister among us. As we sing, as we share communion together, This communion that we believe you host. You are present here. Awaken my spirit again to the sheer miracle of your presence here. To the wonder. Of a God who not only came to be with us. But who is now still with us. A God who is with the living and the dead. A God that holds us through all things. A God that has proven himself in our eyes. You didn't need to rise from the dead, but you chose to do that. To show us. To reach us. To rescue us. For those moments on the cross when you were separated from God that we might never be. Thank you, Jesus. The moments on the cross when you experienced all that death would bring in order that we might experience all the life that you have. Thank you, Jesus. And so I give my life to you again. I put my trust in you afresh. I'm choosing not to trust my skills. My talents, my career, my family, my job, my house, my status, my whatever it might be. I'm choosing to trust you. That you will be the one that will lead me, us, all the way home. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back. And take you that you also might be where I am. Thank you for every moment in this life we feel at home as a window of the one day when we'll truly be there, when we'll truly be home. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.